0: do better welcome to do better podcast a digital content hub from asade built for minds interested in doing better knowledge ideas perspectives and research insights on topics that matter business advice for better decisions and growth latest on the world of innovation and ideas a look inside a global world beyond borders and an open view on social challenges you can leave your comments and suggestions on dobetter.isade.edu.
1: Today, we are pleased to have here Kyle Lakhani, that is a professor at Harvard Business School uh, and a leading technology management and an expert in innovation. Uh, Kyle Lakhani, together with Marco Ianciti, just published a new book. It's Competing in the Age of AI. It's a book that revises competition in an era of the AI and cloud that transform not only how companies compete but how we all conduct our lives. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for being in the
0: first cut. Thank you for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here with you.
1: Our first question is: When we talk about the future, many say that uh, working in general and uh, business are going to be substituted by robots. Do you think it is true? And if is this if it is true, why do we care about competition? Is robots particularly? If we're going to <coughs> hate the over the world.
0: That's a great question. Um, and in fact, you know, look, I think uh, I have uh, you know three perspectives on this. Yeah, the first is, you know, the book uh, makes a very clear distinction between what is known in computer science between you know strong AI and weak AI. You know, strong AI is the stuff of uh, science fiction and movies right what the star trek computer the star wars ai and so forth um, and and we're not you know we're not there yet for that uh, weak ai are are algorithms that are very specific very dedicated to a particular task and they're not general purpose uh they're they're, they're solving one particular problem like image recognition Error detection, you know, you name it like that, um, and these algorithms, while the the mathematical and statistical bases might be the same, they're trained to be very narrowly focused. Um, and so, the first thing is the weak AI is what is sort of uh, working really well across industries in a, in a range of settings. Um, and you know, your experience today with many of the AI first platforms like the Google, like the Facebook. Uh, like a Microsoft, like a Alibaba, like a in Financial, those aren't based on general AI. They're based on very specific algorithms. They can do consumer fraud detection. They can figure out your loan application. They can figure out what you need next in terms of product recommendations. But those algorithms, you know, you can't take a consumer fraud detection algorithm and apply it to a, a recommendation algorithm. It won't be able to do that. You have to sort of, you know, rewrite the algorithm and re- retrain them. Um, So, or voice recognition or or so forth. In all those cases, it's it's an assemblage of weak AI algorithms that are sort of creating many of these magical experiences. So when people talk about robots replacing humans, my best um, answer right now is uh, relying on um, uh, this gentleman, Pedro Domingos, who's a professor at at the University of Washington in Seattle uh, in computer science and wrote this great book called The Master Algorithm. And he said, you know, Uh, uh, robots aren't going to replace managers or executives, right? Managers and executives with AI, right, are going to replace managers and executives without AI, right? And I think that's the key element that what's what's happening is with weak AI today in companies, you are now able to be much more effective than those that don't have them. Uh, And that gives you competitive advantage. So I hope that answers the question. So, so at the moment, you know, until there's some you know, um, exogenous event which allows us to get superhuman intelligence in computers, at the moment, these algorithms are weak and fragile, but they're really good at doing one thing. And managers that can assemble a bunch of these algorithms together are now going to outcompete those that, that can't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so that becomes the way for us to start thinking about this.
1: So, in a way, it would be companies using AI to compete who are going to replace business, not robots.
0: That's right. That's right.
1: On another uh, area, in business school, we spend a lot of time talking about business models. Our students work a lot with Canvas and other models to decipher the new business models. In your book, you also talk a lot about business models, but you pay a lot of attention to the operating model. Yes. what is the operating model? Why is this
0: so important? I think in many ways, the, you know, the business model defines a strategy for a company, right? Like your value creation and your value capture. Uh, and that, that essentially is you know, the ways in which why customers want to transact with you and the ways in which you make money from those transactions. But that is only part of the conversation. You then need value delivery. The value delivery happens through what happens inside the business. That's the operating model. And the operating model is all about how you achieve scale, how you get many more people uh, as your customers, how you achieve scope, how you enable, uh, you offer them different, different products, and how you learn and how you improve. That's the operating model. It consists of the structure, process, and the routines you have and assets you have in place. But the scale, scope, and delivery is the operating model side of the equation, which I often find gets ignored Right. Operations is mostly taught as sort of like inventory management, supply chain management, right? Going after bottlenecks. But I think we're trying to elevate the notion that the entire operating model, the structure of the organization, the ways in which value actually gets delivered, created and delivered, that's up to the the internal operating model. And that's why the the digitization of that operating model, making that AI enabled, removing bottlenecks from that entire operating model
1: is is so critical so ai and cloud have transformed in business both in the business model and the operating model but how these new companies that have been transformed by ai are out competing the traditional ones you yeah. have a very nice graph on that that is very central on your book
0: yeah, absolutely. And, you know, maybe we can share that graph or the, the, the related HBR article that's out there or the book as well. <laughs> uh, and, and what I would say is that, um, so if you sort of think about on the Y axis value uh, per user uh, or value uh, accrete to, to the user and on the X axis, sort of the number of users you may have, what happens in a traditional product business is that over time uh, the value per user uh, starts to you know increase and then diminish. There's diminishing returns to that um, to that value per user as the number of users increases. Uh, in a AI first, digital first business uh, that has both network effects and learning effects uh, coming through, what you see happen is that the value per year per user actually increases as the number of users increase. And what we see happening is there's there's an intersection between uh, a tapering value curve that, that sort of tapers off, increases initially, uh, and sort of and, and, and then and then breaks off. So the top part of an S curve uh, with the bottom part of the S curve, which is increasing, right? And and what we're seeing is a collision between the 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 increasing returns curve we see in AI first companies versus the diminishing returns uh, per user uh, curve we see happening uh, in traditional businesses.
1: Uh, In your book, you talk a lot about the human bottleneck. Uh, Are we the bottleneck so companies get rid of humans? (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Look, look, I mean, just just imagine in our daily lives today how human bottlenecks have been been, um, reassigned or rechanged, right? Uh, At least in the U.S., you know, we don't, we we no longer call uh, operators to give us uh, our taxis. Right? It used to be less than a decade ago that you would be calling a dispatcher to get a taxi. Uh, now, you just let the computer do it for you. It does the matching for you. Uh, travel has changed this way. Translation, right? Translation was a human process. And now, both speech translation and, and text translation has been fully automated. And so task after task, um, you know, consumer segmentation, right? Which are the right profitable consumer segmentations to go? Those tended to be you know, the decision of very specialized marketing people trying to make decisions about what the right price should be and how to think about the right marketing mix, that whole process has been automated because the variety of things that exist in these platforms are exponential. You just can't deal with those things anymore. So what we see happening is that these AI-first companies are relentless about removing human bottlenecks in the value delivery process. But they still have thousands of people creating these algorithms, maintaining these algorithms, improving these algorithms. And also, by the way, um, at the intersection between, you know, what I call atoms and bits, at the intersection between when you need physical stuff to happen and uh, information meets the, the, the physical world, you still need humans, but you now need to make the humans more effective. So what may be happening in these automated warehouses, what may be happening in a, a customer delivery uh, service perspective, you enable the robots, the AI, uh, provide humans with superpowers. Now, is there a, a reduction in the number of people that might be doing those tasks? Absolutely, because to increase productivity for the humans, we will need to readjust and think about how many people we need to, to, to deliver a particular service. Um, but my hope is that that, that is also um, superseded with the fact that there are now new sets of tasks and abilities that people need that we didn't, we didn't think we needed before. So, for example, you know, how do we think about the fact that, you know, we need social media specialists in every organization now? Because social media specialists are needed to be able to, uh, to go after these channels. Right. So that's a whole new occupation category that didn't exist a decade ago uh, that is super important now. And, and so we're, we're seeing sort of existing jobs uh, being redefined, uh, humans getting superpowers with, their, uh, uh, with these algorithms and then new jobs also being created.
1: Mm-hmm. When you describe these new companies and uh, you coined a new concept in these lines, uh, the concept of the AI factory yeah uh, it's
0: the ai uh, ai factory yeah yeah i think i think the ai factory is a realization we had which is when we looked inside these companies in many different industries so again if you sort of think about advertising where google is at social media where twitter or facebook is at advertising again uh, you know um, autonomous driving uh In uh, medical imaging, and all these AI-first companies, the core of the business, the, the value delivery engine, looks to be about the same, which is actually very different than what it used to be. So, if you sort of think about uh, a McDonald's hamburger factory, the McDonald's hamburger factory is is very different from the Ferrari. Uh, um, uh, uh, manufacturing plants, right? Very different sets of tools, capabilities, people you need to run the the the, the Ferrari factory versus the McDonald's factory, the hamburger factory. But the AI factory in McDonald's and Ferrari look the same. And that's a, that's a conceptual shift that we need to make, that the, when we move into the world of artificial intelligence and learning this way and improving this way and value delivery this way, the factory looks the same and the factory has... An immense uh, infrastructure around data. Data becomes the first element, right? You need you need processes to aggregate data, to clean data, to normalize data, and make the data available for the algorithms. You need an algorithmic development process that converts that data into either predictions that you're making about the future state, right? or it does classification of various things, or it does automation. That's what the AI factory does, right? And then an infrastructure to go to launch those at scale. And then on top of it, an A-B testing uh, system, an experimentation system that validates the predictions that are being made uh, in the, in, by the algorithms on an ongoing basis. So that's the AI factory, and that AI factory at various scale levels is the same in a hospital as it is at Facebook, as it is at Google, as at Alibaba, as it is gonna be at Ford as well. And so that, that's a core concept that we need to understand and need how to build and learn and scale and leverage across our enterprise. And this AI factory we think is now gonna be at the center of most organizations, not at the periphery, right, It's gonna drive the organizations forward.
1: In you we talk about the process of digital transformation, when we uh, talk about how these companies are building the AI factory, how they are trying to transform themselves and so on. I found two very, very interesting um, uh, insights in your book about what is stopping digital transformation. One, you call it the mirroring hypothesis and the other is architectural inertia. (laughs) Trying to understand what stops companies, it sounds very interesting. Think, can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, you know, I, I studied as an engineer as an undergrad. Uh, and then uh, for various reasons, I ended up being a business school professor at the intersection of technology and management. And my view is that the technology part of this in many ways is the easier part of it. It requires investment. It requires effort. Uh, it requires recruitment, you know, all those things. But that's the that's that's a that's the easy part. The hard part is the organizational transformation needed to align the the, the new operating model with the new business model that 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 these AI first opportunities uh, allow us to to go after. And um, you know, I've been inspired by we've been Marco Ian Citi and myself have been inspired by the work of Rebecca Henderson uh, and Kim Clark in the '90s. Uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, when they sort of coined this term called architectural innovation, which says that um, many companies have troubles adapting because the architecture of the product or services that they're offering has changed. Uh, the AI factory becoming center of your of your organization is a change in the architecture, right? The emergence of platforms. Which enable these AI factories to operate is a change in the architecture of your product and service and your marketplace. But the change is not just technological change; it's also organizational change. And so uh, the the their analysis says that incumbent companies have a very difficult time, both a recognizing the architectural change and then b adapting the technology and to in their products. But more, most importantly is the organizational processes and routines that need to be realigned and re-put into place in order for them to be able to, to go, go after that. So, so the, the claim in our book is that this architectural shift around platforms, networks, and AI and data is happening industry-wide, right? And either startups are emerging that are, that are challenging incumbents to, with new architectures for products and services right? and a new operating model and also a new organizational model, or these large tech firms are reshaping industry boundaries and entering uh, related industries with this new technological architecture and this new organizational architecture and a new operating model architecture. And incumbents get stuck in trying to do the new with the old operating model. And this architectural shift is as important here as, as it is your business model change along the way. So in many ways, the the need is for executives is to actually work as much on the technology, maybe even less on the technology, but more on the change needed to to take advantage of the technology that they get access to.
1: In your book also you discuss a lot about growth in general and about the network effects as the, one of the main powers of this uh, growth. But you also talk a lot about learning effects. Uh, And this is quite new in the literature because we are so obsessed with network effects and how to align them and and so on. Did you say that learning effects are are as important as network effects and we have to take care of them uh, in this age of AI? Can you uh, talk a little bit about that?
0: I think the realization as we we did the research for the book is that many of these AI-first companies are of course natively platforms, or they set up as platforms that have network effects. Often, they're multi-sided platforms that do that, and there's been a lot written about that. But why did we see so much advancement in these companies in AI as well? Well, it's because what they realized is that they had all these users and they had all this data in these users, and so their systems could get better and be much more accurate about what their users wanted if they exploited that data as well and that's the learning story and the learning story is very clear as you capture the data on usage and as you get more and more data you can then use that to create better algorithms as you have better algorithms right you can create better services as you get better services you get more usage as you get more usage you get better algorithms you get more uh, better services more usage more data and so on this this virtuous circle of data algorithms services Usage is at the core of what goes on as a learning effect, and this learning effect is at scale, right? Like Google gets better and better at predicting what I want to see next, what I want to read next, what I want to improve upon, uh, and and that allows them to not just help me with their existing set of services, but also expand the scope of products that they offer. So I think learning effect is, in our view, as important. Uh, as the network effect, and they they are actually complementary. And the learning effect will sharpen the value curve I was discussing earlier with you, which is the increasing returns curve. With more users, gets sharper as we we, we enable AI to help us learn better as well.
1: You also say in your book that uh, we in this age of AI, we have to we must rethink strategy. And then you turn to networks and networks have always been there but it seems that now networks are more important than before
0: absolutely i think the no company and no industry is an island anymore where we can just be focused on what we do and what happens there is now much more global connectivity of industries individuals people customers and so on and so forth and so so our view is that sort of network analysis as a strategic tool using and exploiting networks for your advantage is going to be a critical toolkit for executives right just as we learn about five forces just as we learn about differentiation and all the things we do in marketing the network story is going to be as important and learning how to to compete in networks with networks across networks are going to be key elements for executives
1: Finally, in this new era, uh, all companies face many challenges. And many times we think that larger and bigger companies are at an advantage. Uh, in Europe, we have lots of small companies and lots of small countries. Uh, you have to give a single advice to these small companies and these small countries and regions of Europe. Uh, which one will be?
0: I mean, I think I think I think look, I think what I would say is that for smaller companies. Um, all these companies that we talk about, these large companies, were were first small companies, too, right? There were startups that weren't going to survive, uh, or there were small companies that weren't able to scale. They figured out, the they unlocked the scaling formula. So, and there's nothing magical about that. There is good science and literature and knowledge as to how to scale and use network effects and, and AI to help you scale. So that potential exists. Of course, you need luck and market timing and all those additional things. But I don't think it's like a mysterious process anymore that we need to sort of somehow say only a few special get it. The knowledge is now widely available. The second thing I would say for smaller companies also is that, look, you are going to be participating in the platforms of others. And so your platform competition strategy becomes very important. Your network strategy becomes very important. How do you get a favored position in the platform? It's going to vary by context, of course. but Uh, getting favorite position in somebody else's platform is going to be very important. And then learning how to play with multiple platforms is going to be increasingly important for survival. So don't just be satisfied with that I'm the the best uh, retailer on Amazon. You need to be sure that you are serving multiple platforms globally and can can survive in many of them and hedge against them along the way. And for countries, for regulators, is to ensure that, regardless of the setting, that, that they ensure that multiple platforms survive and thrive so that the participants in the platforms, with us as users and then the smaller developers, companies, ecosystem partners, have the ability to switch between platforms so they can do well as well.
1: Thank you very much, Kain. Thank you very much for your time, for your insights. We managed to cover only a small part of your book, And I really believe that your book is not only a very needed contribution to the field, but also much needed guide that provides a statistical framework where companies can articulate this digital transformation that is so needed. Uh, to all our listeners, remember that Competing in the Age of AI by Kaim and Michael Yancity is uh, ready and you can read it and <laughs> you probably yes. should. Yes. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much to It's a pleasure talking to you. You asked great questions and I hope that you know the insights we have in the book are useful uh, for executives, for managers, uh, as they think about what's ahead of them in terms of their futures.
1: Thank you very much, Kain.
0: Thank you. Thank you. If you still want to learn more, remember, you can register on our platform, dobetter.asade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you. Do better.